0: Welcome to episode 169, Dissociation Made Simple, Best Practices for Changing the Conversation by Dr. Jamie Marich, Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Jamie Marich, and thank you for joining me for this Clearly Clinical podcast on Dissociation Made Simple, Best Practices for Changing the Conversation. So, I'd like to get into this content and the paradigm shift I'm proposing right away, even in how I introduce myself. So you likely read my professional bio on Clearly Clinical's site. You may have heard other episodes that I've done with Clearly Clinical. And yes, Dr. Jamie Marriage, licensed professional clinical counselor are my credentials. And I've written many books in the field of trauma recovery. I'm an EMDR therapy trainer, and I have all of the publications and credentials that would gain me credibility and access as somebody who is scholarly, still mostly a practitioner, yet has a lot of scholarly credibility. Yet many years ago, I decided to start teaching more from this place of Jamie. Jamie the person. And Jamie the person happens to be not just a single person, rather a system with dissociative identities. So just notice what's coming up for you even as I say that because I've done this work now for many years where I have been more out and candid about my own experiences with dissociative identities and it can still make people in the field of the helping professions very nervous. One of the contributors in the new book that I'll be talking about at some point, uh, Dissociation Made Simple, is a therapist who now herself is out about her dissociative identities. And she reflects that when she first heard me talk at a training and be this candid about it, as candid as I'm being with you about it, she kind of kicked back and had this experience of, you know, this this lady's insane up there in front of a group of clinicians talking this openly and this candidly about having dissociative identities. And that very much speaks to the stigma that still exists about dissociation, specifically dissociative disorders in the field of clinical counseling and psychotherapy. So I guess I'll just start there by saying, I, we, and I often use we pronouns (laughs) to reference the fact that we are a dissociative system. We are out about many things, and we have been throughout our career. We entered graduate school 2003-2004, and we're always very candid and open about the fact that we're a person in addiction recovery. In fact, getting into clinical graduate work was the direct guidance of our 12-step sponsor, and it always felt very authentic to be open about that. In 2015, we came out fully and openly in all areas of our life as a bisexual woman. Prior to that, we had been out to close friends, to other partners, yet there was always a hesitancy about fully outing ourselves professionally. In some contexts, we would if we felt safe enough, but... Coming from a very conservative Christian family, being out publicly didn't feel like it was something we could safely do, yet in 2015, we we made that decision to do it and do not regret it. I will say though that coming out, quote unquote, as a person with dissociative identities, as a person with dissociative disorder has been the hardest coming out that we've had to navigate, especially in coming out to other clinical professionals. And why is that? And what does this say about the very need to change the conversation about dissociation in the clinical professions? So dissociative disorders have, oof, I guess the best way to say it would be, I don't know, even as I'm trying to get this out of my mouth, it's, it's bringing up some activation with me, but we tend to encounter one of two things. I mean, yes, there's society's perception at large, which is largely influenced by media, which largely equates dissociative identity disorder with the old school multiple personality disorder, equates it with violence, And so, yes, coming out in society can be a tricky thing because people like me are often meant to explain it as or have to explain it as, yeah. So I have this thing called a dissociative disorder. Many people will say, what is that? I'm like, well, you know, for a multiple personality disorder, right? Well, it's not called that anymore. And anything you probably know about it is really off base. And so... I'm just bringing that up so you have some maybe kind of frame of reference, even if it's wrong, but I'd then like you to hear me explain how it shows up in my life. So that's often what it is like, quote unquote, coming out to the general public. Now within clinical professions, there tends to be one of two attitudes that folks like me are rubbing up against. Yes, there are still many people in the clinical professions, especially psychiatrists, but we hear it among psychologists and other helpers as well. The belief that dissociative disorders, multiple personality disorders previously are not real. They're a bunch of bunk is what a psychiatrist at one book contributors facility told her. A particular story that I like from one of the interviewees in Dissociation Made Simple is from a person who's a well-known dissociative disorders advocate, Olga Trujillo. And Olga is an attorney, a lawyer, who often advocates for people with dissociative disorders in legal spaces. So one time, Olga was doing... A piece of education and a clinician came up to them at one of the breaks and said, I, I don't believe in DID. To which Olga responded, well, you know, lucky for me, I don't have to believe in it because I have it. It's, it's not a religion. And even in my professional advocacy spaces, I'm really not interested in having these kind of debates or discussions anymore about whether DID is real, because it is real. It's been established. And a very scholarly article that I recommend, if you're still doubting this, is a piece called Separating Fact from Fiction by Bethany Brand and colleagues. And you it's an open access article published by the Harvard Review of Psychiatry. You can go to your favorite internet search engine, separating fact from fiction, Bethany Brand, and that will come up. And I tell people that I train, have that PDF on the ready. If you are encountering these types in your clinical practices, especially psychiatrists, that passing this article along, that does look at a thorough peer-reviewed vetting of the facts versus the myths about dissociative disorders, probably the biggest myth being that it doesn't exist. And there's evidence here to show that it clearly does. So that's all I have to say about that. Now, the second bit of bias or misconception that we tend to run up against in the professional field is this idea that, yes, well, dissociative disorders are real. (sighs) but they're really hard to handle. Now I tell folks when I train, I, I'd rather you be in the second camp. <laughs> I'd rather you believe that dissociative disorders are real and then we can work with you about any fears, misunderstandings that you have. And a lot of these fears and misunderstandings are still put there by stigma. I It continues to sadden but not surprise me that so many clinicians I encounter do not have DID or dissociation covered in any significant way during their graduate training, that a lot of the frame of reference folks are still operating from is the old school dissociative multiple personality portrayals that still get shown in so many Hollywood movies. And the thing with media bias is that even The better portrayals of dissociative disorders, because there have been some glimmers of hope in recent years, still have this tendency to emphasize the more dramatic presentations of what it means to be dissociative, like the switching, like these parts coming to the forefront who are most likely to get the person into trouble, and that makes a really good plot point. Another contributor, Jamie Pollack, uh, to dissociation made simple, a, a, a woman, a preschool teacher with dissociative identities who founded the epic advocacy organization, Healing Together. Jamie said, people would be surprised to learn how routine my life really is. And I will say for myself in, in a, in a more healed state or in a healing state, yes, Life does not look that dramatic on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we go through our periods where certain parts are activated and need more attention. Yet, this part of what it means to have a dissociative disorder to be in healing is not as appealing and entertaining for folks who may operate in media. So... I mentioned in my introduction that I work as an EMDR therapy trainer. I've trained EMDR therapy basic training since 2015. I've done advanced topics training since 2009, 2009, 2010. So I've interfaced with the EMDR therapy community quite a bit. And I have a pretty good sense of what a lot of the clinical biases are that gives us this reputation as us meaning people with dissociative disorders as as folks who are too hard to handle or too much. There's really just a lot of fear, even by many of the experts who teach on dissociation, this this implied or direct communication of you better be careful or you're going to destabilize them and destabilizing them could feel something that's, that's very scary. There's a phrase I hear quite a bit, especially in EMDR, where people say, trainers and and other leaders have said, well, don't let them dissociate. And a lot of that is this feeling that the EMDR won't work if a person's dissociated, which, yes, if a person's dissociated significantly, the EMDR is probably not going to work as it should. But a lot of us can process and tolerate EMDR therapy in a light degree of dissociation. I think that's a big message that many of us with dissociative disorders want to tell the EMDR community and the larger clinical community. And a phrase that I've really adopted in my advocacy and has has shown up in the book in the form of a chapter title is dissociation is not a dirty word. And that's where I really want to start our deep dive here in this educational podcast, because I first want to validate that you may be a clinician listening to this who does have a lot of that fear of dissociation. Much of it can be fueled by this sense of, I just don't know what to do with it. I don't want to make the person worse. I don't want to create more harm. And if you feel those things, it is likely not your fault or your blame because I already mentioned we don't tend to get adequate training in graduate school about it. And I think a lot of the legacy of trainers who are still around training on dissociation, although they have fine knowledge to impart, have still been impacted kind of by this era of the 80s and 90s where we we had to constantly prove that dissociation was a real thing. So trainings can feel overly academic, overly scholarly, overly technical. It's not necessarily that it's bad knowledge getting imparted. But I remember even sitting in my first EMDR special topics training on dissociation in in 2006. And here I was a person with a dissociative disorder. I had a pretty good understanding of dissociation through my own lived experience at that point. And I'm sitting as a a newer clinician at this training. And I'm thinking to myself, she seems like she, she, the presenter, seems like she's making this harder than it needs to be. Like it's so technical just to prove that it's a real thing, but I think that's what flusters a lot of clinicians. So to really move into our first objective here, I really want to hopefully diffuse some of this fear that you may be experiencing by really looking at what is dissociation? And I might ask you to just take a moment of pause, perhaps breathe into the question and ask yourself... How would I define dissociation? What is my working understanding of dissociation based on my clinical or lived experience? So I started life as an English teacher. I didn't start life as an English teacher. I started my professional life as an English teacher, drama, music teacher. I had no intention of being a helping professional, I hated psychology when I was an undergrad. And I I say all this to say, and if you've taken other courses with me, you know that I often go to word origin, that when we're unpacking a clinical construct like trauma, like mindfulness, like addiction, what does the word even mean that we tend to throw around in the English language? And dissociation is one of those words that I really believe by looking at the word origin, it gives us a lot of the basis of understanding that we need. So the English word dissociation comes from a Latin root, dissociatio, which means to sever or to separate. So just sit with that a moment. Dissociation means to sever or to separate. So what is it we're severing from? What is it we're separating from? I think the way we all dissociate and can all relate to is this notion of severing from the present moment, severing from the present space because it has become unpleasant, overwhelming, maybe even painful. And so it's a very natural human tendency to engage behaviors that may want to give us a mental break or a mental escape. And I'm not even talking yet about clinically significant dissociation. Rather, I'd like you to think just from your experience as a human being... What are some ways that you sever or separate when things are unpleasant? So the common examples that are given are zoning out, daydreaming, getting a little foggy. Also challenging you to consider though how behaviors like scrolling at your phone can be a way that we sever or separate. And I bring that up as an example not to be shaming. Because for instance, several of our dissociation made simple contributors noted that scrolling my phone, particularly when I'm in a high stress or toxic situation, like a family gathering, can help me stay sane enough to even remain in that space. But like with a lot of dissociative behaviors... Yes, it it can cross a line to being more maladaptive where it gets in the way of our life. So one of the reasons I use the phrase dissociation is not a dirty word is at its heart, simple dissociation is something we all do. And in so many constructs and so many contexts, it really does help us to cope to survive. But then clinically, I think where we start to explore it and unpack it as a quote unquote problem is when is it leveraged so continuously that it really gets in the way of your life. So the other kind of side of the meaning of dissociation is the idea of severing or separating from parts or aspects of ourselves severing or separating from parts or aspects of ourselves. And this is what can really cause clinicians the puzzlement sometimes doing what we would now tend to generally call parts work. You know, I get the question all the time, which modality should I be using for parts work? And I'll, I'll cover that later. But I think fundamentally what I want us to see at this point in the talk is that We are, we all have parts, we all have aspects of ourselves. And if that word parts feels a little big for you, maybe think about different sides of yourself, different roles of yourself that you may occupy and a natural sever severing or compartmentalization in our life can help us to be present in the roles that we're in at the time we need to be in those roles. Yet for many people with dissociative identities, like myself, the the separation, the severing happened early enough in life, it maybe has happened more intensely in order to cope or survive or withstand a traumatic happening, that the separation does become more pronounced. And I think a long misunderstood bias in the field, bias in the field, is that this severing, this separation, is somehow inherently bad or flawed and needs to be fixed. (sighs) A lot of the old school thinking is, well, integration amongst the parts has to happen for a person with dissociative identities to really be well and healthy. And even... Consultants who are decent trauma therapists that I work with in, in the modern era can present with this sense of, well, there's so much fracturing, there's so much separation going on, it's just not good for them. And so much of what the community of those of us with dissociative identities really want people to see right now is the parts themselves aren't necessarily the problem. And integration can be a dirty word for a lot of us. <laughs> Uh, especially if we feel like a therapist or some outside entity is forcing us to integrate in order to quote unquote be well. Many of us do operate with a multi-layered system. And the key for healing becomes how do we promote more communication amongst those parts? And when we can learn to do that in a non-shaming environment, we often do experience a great deal of wholeness and wellness and can live the lives that we want to be living. So to review, dissociation means to sever or to separate. It can mean severing or separating from the present moment or severing or separating from parts or aspects of self. Now, a little bit of the historical context here. And I admit that this is why... What is dissociation? It could be a very confusing question. Because therapists can even struggle with that. Well, is it about leaving the present moment? Is it about parts and parts work? Like, like I seem to hear dissociation referred to in a lot of different ways, and that's very true. It is. And that's where it can cause some of the confusion. So, as a psychological construct, the term dissociation is generally credited to Pierre Genet. Pierre Genet was a French psychiatrist and hypnotherapist who published pretty extensively in the 1880s and 1890s. And he, as a native French speaker, first coined the term desegregation, which many have criticized could, should better be translated as desegregated. Or disaggregated, rather. Yet, for better or worse, William James, the the American philosopher, translated him in 1890 as dissociation. And then Genet, when lecturing in English, would continue to reference it as dissociation. Now, the word dissociation was not new. To the 1880s, 1890s, uh, a colleague of mine and I found reference to the word dissociation in, in Herman Melville's Moby Dick from 1851, uh, referencing it in a similar way to how we would talk about it as a psychological construct. And I do think it's very interesting that Janae is the one credited with coining the term psychologically, because he is also the father of what many of us know to be this three-stage consensus model of trauma treatment that is largely recommended as best practice by organizations like the um, International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. The idea that treatment should begin with stabilization, trauma treatment ought to begin with stabilization or preparation before we take a person deeper uh, with reprocessing or processing and then have some kind of reintegration plan, adaptation plan to larger society. So Genet, for this reason, is, is often considered the father of trauma therapy. And another reason is that as a practitioner, he's largely regarded as someone who believed his patients particularly when they reported abuse, as opposed to Freud, who may have believed them but knew he was on politically shaky ground with his colleagues to really explore that. I challenge my students when when I teach on this to think about how, especially in a modality like EMDR therapy, yet there are similar modalities where talk is not as important, narrative is not as important, rather sinking into your emotions and your body sensations and just noticing is where the real mechanism of action happens. And many students and consultants will consultees will ask me, what if the person constantly wants to talk? What if the person is an over talker? And here's where we have to dance a delicate line, because we have to be very clear not to communicate to our clients, you know, just shut up. What you have to say is not important, just feel. Because many people do, well, I'm one of these people, need to leverage verbal content, need to leverage talking, because if we don't, it feels like we're holding it all in. But if the talk is getting in the way, if the thinking is getting in the way of us connecting to emotion and sensation and having an overall what we might call holistic experience of healing, then yes, that's when over analysis and over talking can potentially be framed as a dissociative response. So this next part of the definition may be a little too big to get into on a one hour podcast, but I at least want to put it out there. And that is if we go to the larger societal context the larger global cultural context, there's even more meanings of dissociation that can be considered. Dissociation as separation in society can also be a positive or negative, or to use the terms Francine Shapiro gave us, an adaptive or maladaptive existence. So let me break that down because I know that that's a mouthful there when I was preparing the book, I did a simple dictionary definition search on the word dissociation. And one of the examples that dictionary.com returned at that time was the United States exists on a disassociation, a dissociation between church and state. <laughs> and even in considering that, I said, well, yeah, that's fundamentally a good thing. As, as somebody who wants that and believes that's what's best for our society, yes, there should be a dissociation. It's sometimes commonly mispronounced disassociation, which soapbox, it's technically not correct to say disassociation, but if it helps you to conceptualize what dissociation means, that it is a disassociation from something, cool. So yes, a dissociation of church and state. Now, what's interesting is some people like me see that as something that's very positive and adaptive. Other people see that as, oh, that's the worst thing ever. In speaking to many Native American contributors and folks who practice Native American healing arts for the Dissociation Made Simple book. And I really wanted to do that because I know that in understanding dissociation, there is a larger answer here, a larger perspective here that is bigger than Western psychology. I believe that anyway, even not just in talking about dissociation, rather in any psychological construct we look at, we, we must acknowledge that <laughs> native and indigenous healers have insight here that predates professional psychology. And so many of the native practitioners and indigenous practitioners I talked to really emphasize that society depends on us being disconnected from each other, that society naturally creates a disassociation or dissociation between, let's say, mind and body, between spirit and body, between each other. And that the answer to that kind of dissociation is connection. Uh, two of our contributors especially talked about how growing up in systems, one grew up in the Canadian residential school system. He, he was demanded to dissociate, to disconnect from his native roots and to truly heal he had to create a reassociation a connection so i think these are components of the definition we have to look at too several black or african american contributors in dissociation made simple noted that they have had a leveraged dissociation though adaptively to even exist in society to navigate a society that is fundamentally set up to discriminate against them. Dr. Kelly Kirksey, who's a professional collaborator of mine, also contributed for the book, said, our people have had to dissociate from each other since 1619. (laughs) Since slavery, we've had to leverage dissociation in order to survive and to cope. So even in this little part of the talk, I hope you're recognizing that, yes, there's a lot of things when we talk about dissociation that can feel very bad and very ugly and very problematic, especially based on your perspective. Yet there are also a lot of things about dissociation that are fundamentally helpful, can be helpful, when leveraged in certain contexts. So, if we're going kind to of wrapping up this section, it's very much that dissociation is not just one thing. At its core, it's not a dirty word, it's something that we all do. Yet, I think in evaluating how dissociation shows up, Dr. Francine Shapiro, who created EMDR, her constructs of adaptive and maladaptive can be very useful. And she leaned into those words adaptive and maladaptive in describing how traumatic memories are processed because she didn't want to use words like healthy or unhealthy or good or bad because even those can come with a value judgment. Whereas adaptive recognizes what's adaptive for me may not be adaptive for you. What was adaptive for me at certain points in my life are not so fully adaptive now. And sometimes it's a little bit of both. So an example that I I often put myself out there with is, is my relationship with daydreaming and fantasy. As a kid growing up in a lot of toxicity, I was a very active daydreamer. I had several landscapes that felt like they were both inside and outside of my head that I lived in. And My relationship with kind of the actual reality that the rest of the world saw was, was something that was a challenge. That dissociation helped me to stay alive. It helped my spirit from totally getting crushed. As I came into adulthood, yes, it, it caused some problems, especially when I couldn't really live in the reality I was being asked to live in and, and do things that some would call function. Attend to my activities of daily living if we're using real clinical language. And so what's interesting is even my first recovery sponsor framed it as this thing that worked for you so well back then just kind of stopped working and then drugs and alcohol entered the picture with which accelerated my tendency to dissociate and huh, all of that but even now as i tell this story or share this reflection it's not so black and white that yes my daydreaming served me when i was a child it doesn't serve me anymore so i've healed and grown out of it, I still daydream. It is the source and the basis of a lot of my creativity. It's still how I cope in a lot of ways. Yet what healing and recovery has taught me how to do is being more conscious about my relationship with it to recognize and realize when there are certain times in my life where doing it is not very helpful. And that friends is honestly where my parts help me really listening to my parts. Like I have a part in my system who I gonna call Dr. Jamie and most of us with dissociative systems, at least that I've talked to seem to have a part that we frame as this, you know, I, I get shit done. Part and that's Doctor Jamie and yes, if she's always out front, if she's overworking, then that can cause a burnout in our system. Yet, learning how to communicate between you kind know, the Doctor Jamie side of us and the Jamie side of us helps us to 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 dance elegantly with these different behaviors. And that's a metaphor, of course, where we know kind of when to use it and can be more conscious about how we use it and also recognize when okay it's it's time to show up. All right, so to recap, we've looked at some of the definitions of what dissociation is and how framing it maybe in more of this holistic humanistic way can help begin to reduce some of the fear and stigma and bias that we have around dissociation. We've talked about so far how societal portrayal of dissociation, especially through media, can be the source of a lot of this stigma and bias. We have also discussed how the field perpetuates a lot of it, this kind of double messaging that is rampant through the field, either that dissociation and DID doesn't exist, and it's not real, or that yes, it does exist, and it is real, yet it is fundamentally one of the hardest things to treat. And it saddens me when I still hear therapists who maybe have not had that much exposure to folks with DID and dissociative disorders, say things like, yes it's the hardest thing to treat and and people with did are are just naturally addicted to chaos that's actually a phrase that has gone up <laughs> has circulated the training community about did uh yeah and i would say in our active struggles we certainly can be or or there can be a part that is yet Many people with dissociative identities, especially when they're able to get the validation and healing recovery that they need, can live very active, full, I hesitate to say productive lives, because yes, many of us do live productive lives. I mean, by society standards, I, as somebody with severe complex trauma and dissociative identities, am the pinnacle of success. But I also wanna be careful not to put out this kind of very ableist view that you have to be the pinnacle of success in order to have worth and value as a person. Many of us struggle, yet many of us are able to do this thing called life. And as several of my, my peers with dissociative experiences have talked about we really want to put this message out there that it can be both you can be a business owner and somebody who's very productive and 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 what society may see as functional yet you can also struggle and there will there be other areas of life where you may still need a lot of help Yet I don't think that is unique to the DID diagnosis or the dissociative disorders diagnoses because there are others besides DID like OSDD, otherwise specialized, otherwise specified dissociative disorder, depersonalization, derealization. And these are things you, you can look up in your DSM. You can get further training on them. If you're interested in my book, Dissociation Made Simple, we go through the major diagnoses. For free, though, I can also recommend An Infinite Mind, which is a website I'd like you to check out anyway, An InfiniteMind.com, which to me is the premier advocacy organization for people with dissociative identities and and dissociative disorders. So how do we end or reduce the stigma, not just about dissociative disorders, about all mental health struggles? I recently had a follower on one of my social media pages gently challenge me, and I really like this challenge, that stigma is a very safe word that we use. It's a very euphemistic word. Because what we're really talking about is hatred, discrimination, misunderstanding, when we're discussing stigma. And I do tend to agree. Something So in terms of how to combat stigma, obviously, education, discussion, listening to a podcast like this, I think is a really good start. My challenge for you then is how can you pay this forward? How can you engage one other professional in a discussion around dissociation, like the discussion we've we've had today, where you really break it down in plain language, human terms, challenging clinicians to talk about where some ways dissociation shows up in my own life. And yes, I may not have a clinically significant dissociative disorder, yet where do parts show up for me? Where are the different sides or aspects of myself? So I think that's one way we can really reduce stigma. I wasn't planning to talk about this so directly in this section, yet it dawns on me that I haven't talked about it yet directly, And that is a question I commonly get. If I had more of an interactive dynamic with you, somebody would probably be asking me this question. And that is what model should I be using for parts work? My feeling as a person with dissociative identities is that all of the different models that are out there, IFS, ego state therapy, theory of structural dissociation, Honestly, folks, I tend to lean more into traditional Jungian archetypes and the mythologies connected to those in looking at a system for parts that there are many different models. No one is perfect. They all have some things they can offer us. They all have a lot of deficits to them. Especially something I call out is how some of the more popular models have done a good job at normalizing the existence of parts in all of us. Yet sometimes in writing and in lecture, that can be projected with the tone of, but but don't worry, you don't have to be like those people with DID to say that you have parts. Which, I mean, I guess I've done that as a teacher before too, to say, hey, I'm just trying to normalize this. But even as we normalize to be careful about Are we using some of the, but you're not like those people types of concerns? And why is it that we say that? Because there's still radical misunderstanding and bias and discrimination, uh, both in society and in the field against people with dissociative identities. And another area that I'm very passionate about, emphasizing in my teaching, and I, I will give you some literature here to kind of back this up, is that more of us therapists, especially those of us like myself who may have a little more public presence, really must come out about our own struggles with mental health and, and mental illness. Even as I said that, notice what's coming up for you. Did you have a reaction or a response like, I can't do that. Because people will judge me. I'll lose my standing in the community. People will challenge my credibility. Or I had this graduate professor who said, I, I, I have to hold it all together. Because if I don't, then my clients won't take me seriously. And this whole issue around self-disclosure is nuanced because I want to recognize that self-disclosing to a client is fundamentally a different issue than self-disclosing amongst your colleagues and out in the public. I mean, there can be some overlap now because any of my clients can listen to this podcast, for instance. So with clients, I, I still very much maintain Use of self-disclosure if it is clinically appropriate, if it is clinically indicated, and to be mindful that we're not dominating sessions by talking about ourselves so much. And to be constantly getting feedback from your clients on is the level of self-disclosure I use, is it helpful? Yet I'm talking here about kind of a bigger advocacy social justice issue here of How are we ever going to hope to smash stigma and discrimination about mental illness, especially dissociative disorders in society, if so many of us still feel unsafe to come out to our colleagues or to come out in professional settings? And I knew, friends, that I couldn't really train and write on dissociation until I could be this candid about it. And that took me a while. So I I want to, to highlight that I was diagnosed in 2004 during my graduate program. And even though I was diagnosed formally in 2004, when I got my diagnosis of dissociative disorder, NOS at the time, all of a sudden, my whole life and my whole world made sense. And coming out for me was a dipping my toe in the water type of process. I I believe in my 2011 book, EMDR Made Simple, mentioned that I struggled with a lot of dissociative symptoms as a result of my complex PTSD. (laughs) That felt like the safest way for me to come out at the time. And then at various workshops or other venues over the years, I kind of read the room to see if it felt safe enough for me to disclose that, yes, I'm a person with a dissociative disorder and we're a five-part system. There's, there's people within me or uh, various team members within me. And when I started to do that, I would then have folks come up to me over break saying, I cannot believe a presenter was this candid about her own dissociation. And it wasn't an insult. It was more of a wonder. And that's when I started to know there's something here. Like there's something seriously wrong with this field if we can't do this as professionals, as teachers. So I would say why it's been a process for me is with every degree of success I've had in my career, I've had more privilege where I can come out and at this point I could care less what people think or say about me. Yet I also want to be respectful that those of you earlier in your careers, while you're still trying to establish your reputation, you may not have that privilege yet. So I usually say come out when you can, gauge the situation yet also realize that there's a bigger paradigm to be smashed here and shifted or a big, I should say a bigger stigma, discrimination to be smashed and a paradigm to be shifted. So I do kind of want to end with going over some of what literature says about self-disclosure because I fully recognize some of you may be listening to this and already getting very nervous this is an area I teach a lot on now, kind of helping professionals navigate self-disclosure. And what we're often taught is that self-disclosure should be used rarely, is inherently negative, ought to be avoided altogether. That disclosure comes with a great risk of negative judgment from co-workers and employers. It could be career damaging. And some of this insight came from a series of studies from a team led by folks named Victor and Devendorf in 2022. Professionals are encouraged to conceal their own experiences with mental illness, even though, and here's the the big emphasis, friends, even though this runs counter to so many lessons about reaching out and vulnerability that we teach our clients. (sighs) That burns me up. So speaking of literature, I'd like you to consider these numbers. This is also from the Victor and Devendorf team. In the most recent research in this area, 80% of a surveyed 1,700 psychology faculty members and trainees reported struggles with mental health, and an additional 48% have a diagnosed mental illness. And these rates reflect what can be found in the general population, Many of us have found it useful or will engage in self-disclosure, yet we lack formal structure and guidance on how to do it properly. And that's one of the reasons I want to put a podcast like this out into the world, why I want to put some of the courses and retreats that I do out into the world to let's have a space to talk about how to do it appropriately and properly, because we're not going to end discrimination against mental illness, and especially folks with dissociative identities, until we can learn to do this constructively. A couple other notes from literature, also from the Victor and Devendorf team, that stigma is a barrier to inclusion for both clients and professionals. And peer-to-peer support seems to be a critical component in helping many different groups of people to reduce stigma by coming out getting the help that they need to cope with stigma still encountered. So as we move towards the close of this episode, I'd ask you to reflect on what are two or three things you've heard in this episode that may have made you a little hmm, unsettled or uncomfortable. And maybe you're not unsettled or uncomfortable. Maybe you've listened to this episode and you are filled with the sense of, yes, finally someone's saying it. But whatever this episode, this talk has brought up in you, I'd like you to now sit with the question of what's my action? Dr. Kelly Kirksey, who I talked about earlier, will often ask that of people, what's your action now? What is a constructive way that I as a clinical professional can really do my part in changing this conversation around association? Maybe it is getting more consultation for yourself. And I say consultation over training. Because I think, yeah, there's a lot of training out there in dissociation, but some of it does more to promote this idea of dissociation being this tricky, hard thing. And something that my community has consistently found is therapists who are willing to get consultation, one-on-one interaction with another therapist who is not so afraid of dissociation, often tends to be the trick. In Dissociation Made Simple, one of our contributors, uh, a woman named Megan, talked very openly about her initial therapist she started working with, whom she developed a good relationship with, that this therapist initially had some fear, fearing she didn't have enough training, enough special study to work with Megan around dissociation, yet this therapist got that consultation. And through doing that, was then able to work very effectively with Megan. And if you are a person who may identify with having a struggle with dissociation or your own issues around mental illness, I never want to force anyone out of a closet, to be very clear about that. Yet I would ask you to consider If you have the preparation for it, what are some small ways in your circles of influence you may be able to start coming out? And if there's a hesitancy to come out, how can you explore that? How can you work with that as part of your continued growth and development? So I'd like to leave you with an excerpt. That actually appeared in a peer reviewed journal, Psychiatric Services. Uh, This is from Dr. Adrian Fletcher, who is a member of our larger community of folks with therapists with dissociative identities. And Adrian says, What I want people to understand is that, as with other illnesses, with this illness, there is a wide range of functioning. And the treatment can take a general medical, alternative, or traditional psychiatric approach. For me, it was a combination of all three. However, people like me who live with dissociative identity disorder often live in fear. And so I am trying to be open about my experience. I have lived in fear about being open about my diagnosis, even in my own profession, Which is supposed to be accepting of mental health related concerns. And I have felt ostracized and alone. So thank you, friends, for your willingness to listen today. And if we were in more of a traditional conversation with each other, I would again ask what is your action going forward? All right, friends, so here's a little bit of bonus content that I wanna offer you from, yes, it's from the work of Dissociation Made Simple. A Stigma-Free Guide to Embracing Your Dissociative Mind and Navigating Daily Life, which is my newest book that's out from North Atlantic. Yet there's a lot of general content on what I'm about to share with you in the established literature. And that is how do we work with grounding and mindfulness with folks who struggle with dissociation? So an idea that Christine Forner, who's a well-known leader in the dissociation scholarship has put out there is that in her 2019 article, people with dissociative experiences can struggle learning mindfulness strategies, because in many ways, dissociation is really like an opposite of mindfulness. If mindfulness is about being present with what is then of course that can be hard for people with dissociative experiences to do when you have continued to leverage and rely on dissociation to keep you from being in the present moment. So a question that I get a lot is how do we help people work with strategies for grounding who do struggle with dissociative disorders and relating to the, or dissociation as part of any type of diagnosis, because that's another big finding that came out of the book is so many of the contributors who came forward to speak mentioned that they don't have a dissociative disorder diagnosis, but they may struggle with PTSD or complex PTSD or another diagnosis. And I think that's another big way that we help to shatter stigma and stigma and discrimination is recognizing that dissociation is not this thing that only uniquely affects people with this (sighs) mystifying disorder, something that shows up in, in all the different mental health conditions, or at least most of them. So A pretty established treatment standard is you have to teach people how to ground, how to find solid ground, how to find safety. And something I want us to consider is that many folks, including a few who participated in the book interview, said that the word grounding doesn't really work for them. Rather, a word like anchoring would feel better or getting settled. One of our contributors who struggles with chronic pain even said, get as settled as you can because it may be unrealistic to expect your client or the person you're working with to get completely and totally settled. So even this discussion, I think, is hoping or challenging you to look at how can the language we use be impactful? Not just as a strong clinical strategy, but also in this kind of larger conversation of ending stigma. So maybe think about what word or concept could work for you as an alternative to grounding or may work for your clients. But Then once you have that concept, I'm going to ask you whether you're sitting and listening to this podcast, this is something I think you can even safely do when you're driving or doing other household tasks. How can you get as grounded as possible or as settled as you can in this present moment. So, if you are driving, maybe it's shifting in your seat in just a, a certain way to really feel those points of contact your hands on the steering wheel or the hand controls. I know I drive a lot with seat warmers. Even if the air conditioning's on full blast, I like the seat warmer. It helps my back and it helps my overall sense of presence. If you're listening to this podcast while you're doing a household task, maybe chopping vegetables or folding laundry, how can you feel completely connected to what you're doing or connect as much as you can for now? And if you're sitting or lying down and listening, once more notice those points of contact. Perhaps you keep the eyes open and notice the space around you. And what do you need to do over this next minute or so to get or be or stay as settled as you can? And the last thing I'll leave you with that I hope has some value for your clients is recognizing that even if your intention is to stay completely present with an activity like this or to stay mindful and connected to the moment, if your attention wanders, it does not mean you have failed. It does not mean that you have done this wrong. Rather, if the attention wanders or meanders away, you can always bring it back. And I say this in dissociation made simple that going off base and realizing you've gone off base from your intention here is actually a mindfulness practice because you've recognized that you've drifted from attention or awareness. And I have to engage in dialogue like this with a lot of my clients who can automatically go into a shaming mode. I can't meditate. I can't sit still. See, I can't do this right. Get as grounded as you can. Get as anchored as you can. Get as settled as you can. Knowing that this, like so many elements of your recovery, is a process.